0: Here we go, rejecting the screen, the going ISO edition as we do every week. Noah Kozlov out here on the East Coast, out West is Adam Stanko. Down in the bubble in the NBA is Andy Bernstein, the Hall of Fame NBA photographer, the first ever official NBA photographer. He's been covering the league for nearly 40 years. He has covered every finals behind the lens for the last 37 Also a podcast host, he's done nearly 100 episodes. The guests from Karan Butler to Nat Butler, Kobe, Magic, (laughs) Coach K, and so many more. So highly recommend downloading, subscribing, rating, reviewing, wherever you get your podcast. Also, the hardcover collaboration book with Kobe, The Mamba Mentality, which we'll certainly get to. Noah, you didn't even mention the name of his podcast.
1: Oh, you Legends just said of he's Sport podcast
0: host. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Legends of Sport. Okay. Okay. People are Legends waiting there. Like I'm all want to get sport. on this
0: and then. Okay. Well, I thought maybe I'd mention yeah. it at the very end, make people listen to the whole interview first oh. and then, oh, what's the name of oh, Legends of Sport. Legends <laughs> of Sport is the podcast hosted by Andy Bernstein. Andy, is the rumor true that that your dad was the 13th member of the dream team?
2: <laughs> you know <laughs> that uh That is a very distinct possibility. He didn't make it into the team photo, but he happened to make it into almost every other picture that I did. (laughs) Um, (laughs) He was, uh, he had the nickname, uh, I'm going back a ways with this one, fellas, but he had the nickname Zelig. I don't know if you ever saw that movie with Woody Allen, but, you know, Zelig was this, was was this sort of uh, mythical character who was Woody Allen, but he would appear in like all these historic moments in history, you know, uh, next to Napoleon, or, or you know, at the Battle of the Bulge, or whatever it was, you know. Um, and my dad, God bless him, he was—he uh, always liked to be near the action. Um, you know, Brooklyn guy. So when I was pointing the camera, he somehow found his way into the photo. There's very, there's a very famous photo, at least famous in our our family, of um, of, of Michael and Magic Johnson when we went to the palace uh, in Monaco. Uh, wonderful you know, reception before we we met the prince, and and I had this candid photo of Michael and Magic, and there's my dad like sticking his head in. <laughs> 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 Pretty hilarious. <laughs> what were those yeah. What
0: were those poker games like with your dad and those guys?
2: Well, we didn't play poker because um, first of all, I don't know how to play poker. My dad actually was a good poker player. He, he learned during the war. Told great stories about that, but um i was i'm more of a blackjack player a craps player so when we were in monaco um there were some evenings we found ourselves sitting at the table with a couple of dream team guys that was that was kind of fun it just was you know kind of surreal you know i'm sitting there playing my little you know few chips and then you know to my left is patrick ewing to my right could be charles barkley uh you know magic could come by once in a while it was just all good fun i mean he's you know It was such an incredible experience with those guys to be truly, you know, part of the team, part of the very, very small inner circle of family that traveled with them. And I was happy to bring my dad along. You know, my my uh, love for sports started with my dad, and this was kind of like, you know, payback to him um, by bringing him along. Not only to Dream Team, but to so many other things that I did, from from major uh, boxing matches, Atlantic City and Vegas to all kinds of NBA events, you know, All-Star games and finals, and uh, I took him. To, <laughs> I have a really funny story to tell you guys. I took <laughs> I took my dad to uh, to a Rams game. It was a Rams. This is hilarious. A Rams Miami Dolphins game in the old Anaheim Stadium before the Rams moved, right? And, <laughs> and I got a credential for my dad. And, of course, I had my photo credential, and and I said, Dad, just take this camera and just stay over here, you know, in this corner of the sideline. And just, you know, look like you're taking a picture every once in a while so that people, you know, doesn't raise like an eyebrow. (laughs) And my dad actually was a pretty decent photographer. He got me into photography. And, you know, I'm going to be running around. I'm going to go, you know, to the end zone. I got to go, you know, to the other side of the field, blah, blah, blah. And the whole game, I'm keeping my eye on him, and he's doing what he's supposed to do. And then uh, with, like, two minutes to go in the half, I look over where he's supposed to be, and he's not there. (laughs) Okay, well, maybe he went to the restroom. He was trying to get a jump on on halftime. I don't know. But then he never came back, and they go go to the two-minute warning timeout, and – I happen to glance at the jumbotron, and there's Don Shula. This is literally what happened. There's a giant photo, a giant live shot of Don Shula, and my dad is standing next to him. <laughs> 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 it's like literally standing next to him. I almost died. It was the funniest thing ever.
0: <laughs> Wait, so, what was his what was his explanation for that?
2: He just wanted he just wanted to be next to Don Shula. You know, he's like. I, you know, my dad was wearing kind of like a sport jacket, you know, he looked like he could be somebody attached to the team and he just, you know, sauntered over there. And there he is <laughs> next next to the coach. He got his camera around his neck, you know, <laughs> oh, that
1: is wild.
3: <laughs> yeah. The, pretty funny stuff
1: on, on the dream team though, specifically, I mean, there's so much that we've now heard about the dream team you guys have talked about it, but for you to spend, Every minute from the beginning to the end with that team is, is obviously something special and unique. What's, what's a moment that you had during that run that you were maybe looking around? And I know you take pride in the fact that you're there to work and it's not a fandom. But, but what's a moment that you can recall where you were like, wow, I can't believe I'm here right at this moment?
2: Great question. I mean, there were a few of those um, especially very early in the beginning when we were in San Diego for the initial training camp uh, and I went to practice and I'm looking around and like, this is, this is like an all-star practice times a hundred, you know, <laughs> it's like, <really laughs> crazy all these and they're all on the same team, you know, that's pretty nuts. Um One time really sticks out quite honestly, uh, one day in Monaco, uh, Michael decides to go golfing with uh, P.J. Carlosimo, Chuck Daly, Michael, I think Rod Thorne was there. And I asked if I could tag along and they said, sure, come on. So we all pile in, you know, the van and we, we go to this most unbelievable golf course. Now I'm not a golfer, but I know like what good scenery looks like. <laughs> we go to this incredible golf course on the top of this mountain that overlooks the entire French Riviera. I mean, just mind blowing. And there's this very famous hole. I think it's the 14th hole. And I took this incredible photo of Michael just, you know, with his golf clubs, with his golf club, he was about to tee off. And I just had to get that picture, you know, and, and I say, hey, Mike, you know, I mean, look at what we're looking at here. And He goes, yeah, that's a great picture, man. Take it. <laughs> and, um, you know, I came away with this amazing picture. And that was that was a really special moment because it was really just the four of them and me, you know. Um, and then there were times in the training room. Uh, those are very, always very special times, no matter what, you know, if it's with the dream team or just during my regular NBA life. Um that I get to be a fly on the wall and that's when the guys really just are guys, you know, they let their hair down, they 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 don't feel like they have to hold anything back. Um there's a tremendous amount of trust between them and me and, and me and them. <laughs> um they know I'm not there to get any kind of gotcha moment or you know embarrass them in any way with what I'm doing and I'm I'm literally you know a piece of furniture and um you know that that's really the part of my job honestly, I love the most.
0: So how do you go about forming that trust?
2: Well, you know, it it honestly goes back to, it's going to sound cliche, but it's really about integrity. And it's about being your true self. I mean, honestly, I was a very young, brash, uh, aggressive photographer at the beginning of my career. But I I, want to say that I wasn't I wasn't arrogant, I just had a lot of self confidence and I had a lot of motivation and a lot of drive and Some people might differ with that definition of me, my younger self, but <laughs> that's how I felt, and that's how I felt feel looking back on it and I knew that to get to the next level of what i what I wanted to accomplish as a photographer especially a sports photographer, and the fact that i I was given You know, the access to these players, you know, Pat Riley, Magic Johnson, um, the whole Showtime Lakers team, especially. And then, of course, you know, with Phil Jackson and Michael and Kobe and Shaq moving forward um, that, you know, I couldn't BS around. I mean, I couldn't I couldn't have an ulterior motive. You know, I couldn't uh, I just had to be in my genuine self and show that I I'm here to do my job you know, and I got a lot of respect back from that. And I obviously respected them and I respected their space and I knew when to get in and when to get out. Um, you know, that was kind of a sixth sense, honestly, but the, the pivotal point in that whole sort of, um, I don't know, kind of transformation from a young fledgling photographer to somebody who really felt like they belonged um, was really with Pat Riley. Uh, I owe really so much to him because Pat was very, very protective of his team. You know, it was was literally like this band of brothers that no one could get in. I mean, even family members, wives, you know, he kept everybody on the, on the outside. And here I am, this young, young, you know, (laughs) aggressive photographer who keeps trying to get into his huddle, you know, all these timeouts. And Finally, after about five or six times of him basically flipping me off every time and and Mm -hmm. using very, very, very colorful schenectady language, which I can relate to being, you know, a New York guy. Um, Finally, you know, after a few times of this happening, I'm kind of getting myself ready for a game. The team is warming up before, you know, before a game and he catches my eye and he calls me over, He gives me the, the, you know, the pointer finger. Hey, come over here, kid. And he just looks me right in the eye. And and he, I thought, yeah, you know, thought I was in trouble. Like I'm going to the principal or something. And <laughs> he says, he says, kid, tell me, why do you keep trying to get in my huddle? What is your problem? I keep kicking you out. You keep coming back. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, and I said, coach, I, I got to tell you, I said, people love to see what's going on, on the inside, you know, TV can sort of could kind of get that, but we still photographers don't really have that access, you know, and, I know the fans would love to see that, and you know they want to see you talking to Magic and Kareem and Bill Burke and drawing up a play and whatever. And he thought about it for about a second, and he looked at me. He goes, "All right." He goes, "I'm gonna let you do it one time tonight, and if you screw it up, you're never coming back." (laughs) Except he didn't use the word "screw up." (laughs) And I said, uh, "I said, all right, Coach, Um, that's cool." And I I did it the first time out, and well, actually. I I did it a few times, you know, when he gathered the team before tip-off. I remember uh, first quarter break, um, you know, right before uh, they went out for the second half. And I made him a couple of prints, and I brought them to the next game. And I said, so how did I do? He goes, you were in the huddle. (laughs) Yeah, you told me I could come in the huddle. I guess you didn't notice me. He goes, yeah, I guess not. And so from then on, I kind of earned my stripes. You know, and, uh, he kind of let me do what I needed to do, and that gave me tremendous confidence. I mean, you know, all the guys saw that. Obviously, I had already started a really nice relationship with Magic on and off the court. But you know, when the head of the head of the tribe there lets you know lets you in, um, mm-hmm. it's a good thing.
0: RockAuto dot com, a family business that has been serving auto parts customers online for twenty years. Go to rockauto.com, shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers because there are so many makes and models of cars. You can just go on rockauto.com and they make it so easy to just navigate in their catalog, filter all sorts of things, and you get the best price. So why would you choose to spend 30, 50, even 100% more for the exact same auto parts at a chain store or one of those new car dealerships when you can get things on their site for a reliably low price. You can choose the brand, the specification, and those prices. So go to rockauto.com right now. You can see all the parts available for your car or truck and write locked on, L O C K E D, space on. Locked on in their How Did You Hear About Us box so that they know we sent you. Amazing selection, reliably low prices all the parts your car will ever need, rockauto.com.
1: Andy, I can appreciate um, the colorful Schenectady language. My dad went to high school with Pat Riley and Lynn High School. So, no. Um, no, so yeah, don't. so so all that was used on me, whatever, whatever <laughs> however. Uh, <laughs> Coach Riley was talking to you at the time. I yeah. I heard you say something interesting, that early on you had to learn how to anticipate the action. And I'm curious mm-hmm. – how that played out as you're covering magic who's all about misdirection and and uh, and and all Mm -hmm. that obviously on the break and 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 the showtime lakers and worthy and and um and cooper like how does that play out as you're learning to anticipation what does that look like to you
2: well one thing you guys you already talked to my buddy nat butler so he probably ran you through this but you really for the listeners to understand is that the type of photography that we do um, and indoor basketball games indoor hockey we're using these this intricate system of gigantic strobes these big flashes that in back in the day we had to install almost every single game and take them out after the game but they're these huge flash systems that are up in up in the catwalk so essentially when i push the trigger on my camera these gigundo flashes go off and they expose the picture, right? It's like having, like if you had a little flash on top of your camera and there were probably 500 of those, that's the amount of light that's coming out, you know. And so you're freezing the action, you're using the strobe light instead of the crappy available light that, you know, all the older arenas were known for. And you're able to use daylight film, um, which was, you know, the key to the whole thing because the quality of the film, you know, really was amazing. It's like you're shooting outside. Um, but all this to be said that we can only shoot one picture every four seconds because these flashes are so powerful that they have to recycle their energy back up. And during that recycle time, you can't shoot because if you shoot during that, it blows the fuse and then you're done. You know, you can't reset it, you can't go back to the catwalk, anything. So I had to learn very, very early on. And I learned this as an assistant actually because I was one of the few people myself and Nat, in the country who knew how to set up these strobes for the photographers we were working for as assistants. And I watched how disciplined they were, you know, and, and how they seemed to always wait like a millisecond longer than than I would have, you know, than I probably would have shot a little bit earlier and then maybe with a motor drive, it's like the third or fourth frame of a sequence, that would be the shot. But, of course, we don't have that luxury. So I learned um, on the job, honestly. And when I started shooting with strobes myself, um, there was a lot, of, uh, <laughs> a lot of research and development. But with Magic especially, it was incredibly challenging because, like you said, he, you know, he could do 20 moves between one end of the court and the other. And, you, don't, you know, you can't follow his eyes because you, don't, you have no idea what he's going to do with the ball. Um, A lot of it is guessing. A lot of it is experience built up over watching him so many times in so many games. Um, Some of it is, I don't like to use the word luck, but some of it is the good fortune of not having a referee or another player in your way, you know, (laughs) as we do sit under the basket and, you know, it's a lot of bodies between sometimes between ourselves and the subject. And timing is all is really all it is. it's uh experience timing uh a little bit of luck <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. um, so I, I like to think that i you know I missed a lot, but I got a few that you know that are really good over the years and um Kareem was a great uh i guess learning tool for me too, because you know Kareem had this beautiful sky hook that really only looked great when he was in full extension, the ball just about to come off his fingertips, you know, just this statuesque, incredible, you know, unbelievable moment in time. And if you shot it any earlier, yeah, you know, it's a good picture, but to get that, you know, the apex of the sky hook. And so I learned how to time that, you know, he was very regimented in his sky hook, you know, the way he did it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, of course, you know, just extended to other guys. You know, Michael was just as challenging as Magic, and so was Kobe. But Shaq was a little bit more predictable because Shaq, you know, dunked most of the time. Mm-hmm. So you could kind of, kind of wait for that. Um, but, you know, hopefully that answered your question. But that, uh, you know, that mm-hmm. took some time to learn. But I kind of got into the groove, you know, pretty pretty early in my career.
0: I want, to, I want to stay with Kareem and your first SI cover in 85, winning the title, and then going from that finals in, in, in Boston where, where the Lakers won the title, getting on mm-hmm. the plane and going right to the White House to meet with President Reagan. Mm-hmm. These days, there's you know it's the next season when the teams end up visiting the White House whenever it fits with their schedule, but you guys went right away. So let's start with, that night and the plane ride to the White House and that visit for you before probably follow up with the the feeling of having your first SI cover?
2: Yeah, it was a a magical experience, quite honestly. I mean, here I am, you know, sitting on the floor of Boston Garden and, you know, I had shot the 84 finals and that didn't end well for the Lakers. Although, you know, I don't necessarily cheer or, but, you know, you wanted to see a redemption of some kind, you know, especially after the way it ended in 84 and it was a tremendous finals in 85. And, and we all know, we knew then, and we knew that know now what the history is that the Lakers had lost, you know, Gary West himself had lost six times to the Celtics in the finals, never beat the Celtics, right? No team had ever beat the Celtics during the NBA finals on the Boston garden floor. (laughs) You know, Hmm. so you know, the leprechaun was pretty big on everybody's back <laughs> at that point. and And um, so anyway, you know, Lakers win, win the title. I'm, I'm sitting in a very strange spot on the court. I'm like basically free throw extended. So, if, you know, like on the, on the sideline, like by basically up almost as far as the free throw line, which we never do now, you know, and haven't done for years, at the NBA, but there was so many photographers there and we had a, Myself and Nat and I think there was maybe one other photographer on the floor and video people and you know, it's just crazy that that's where they put me. So back in the day Sports Illustrated would send their two or three photographers, you know, and then they would do what's called pick up the film. They would take film from other key photographers who were there who they could also look at their, you know, at their film to see if, you know, there's something in there they could use. Obviously the priority went to their own photographers, which makes a lot of sense. Um, so they picked up my film from that game. You know, they, they literally took my film in a bag <laughs> along with their two or three photographers, flew it to New York. Right. And I never saw it again. And uh <laughs> You know, it's a lot different than it is now when you push <laughs> the button on the back of the camera, right? Mm-hmm. So anyway, I um, fast forward, Lakers win, tremendous celebration, literally partied all night in the hotel in Boston, get on a plane. I don't think anybody slept, quite honestly. Get on a plane early in the morning. I believe it was like around 8.30 or 9 o'clock. I mean, I, I got to
0: interrupt you, Andy. Andy, you can't just yeah. yada, yada, yeah. yada through the... Celebration party all night in a hotel with the Lakers in Boston. <laughs> yeah,
2: I, yeah, I literally could not remember anything that happened. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Wait,
2: so but were you, was, were you taking was, photos during fun.
0: that celebration? They allow you to take pictures.
2: No, no I didn't. I oh. didn't. I I left the camera in the room. Um, you know, all the guys had their families there. Uh, I felt like I was part of the. I was off duty, so I was okay. Just, all right. I, well, then continue. Okay. Yeah, it's super fun. Um, and so then we get on the plane and like you said, instead of going straight back to LA, we take a pit stop in Washington, you know, and it's, you know, it's hot, it's, it's the end of June, everybody, you know, a teeny bit hung over, nobody had slept and, uh, you know, we get in these buses and we end up at the White House, which was unbelievable. And the next thing I know, we're in the Rose Garden, just baking. I remember it was really, really hot. Waiting for the president, who took his time to come out. President Reagan. And you know, everybody, the teams all lined up. David Stern is there, you know. And here I am taking, you know, pictures of, of the guys, uh, you know, with the president. It was super cool. But I got to go back a little bit because before we left Boston. I'm sitting in, um, you know, like in the boarding area, and my pager goes off, right? And, you know, we don't have cell phones or anything, so I find a pay phone, and I recognize the number. It was a New York number from Sports Illustrated, and I called the editor, Zileen Miller, who was the basketball editor, and uh, <laughs> she says, are you sitting down? I'm saying, no, I'm, I'm standing up because I'm in a phone booth. and she said well you got the cover this week and that Um, was like what I mean how is that even really possible I mean you have like three of the greatest sports photographers of the generation shooting the same game I was at apparently there was a photo that they liked that I took it was a different perspective like I said I was in a different kind of area That don't normally shoot from or photographers don't normally shoot from. Wasn't a picture, quite frankly, that I I probably would have just I wouldn't have thrown it away, but I would have kind of just, you know, put it to the side. Um it was this weird move of Kareem like making this strange move <laughs> by the elbow at the top of the key. I mean the top of the you know free throw line and Danny Ainge is kind of you know lunging at him and it wasn't it wasn't a sky hook, it wasn't a celebration. Um, so I was like out of my mind, you know, just so excited. And uh, so that, you know, precluded going to the White House and that incredible day. Then we finish at the White House, go back on the bus. Well, at first, I took a big group picture in front of the White House, which was awesome. And then end up in L.A. and it's already nighttime. And there were a couple of thousand fans waiting for the team um, at the private terminal. Which was really really amazing, and uh, that's how my day went.
3: <laughs> it's a what truly a day. incredible day. What a day!
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that day was the only. There's only a couple other days in my career that would kind of match up with that. It'd be similar. One was um, when the Dream Team won the gold medal. Um, that was an incredible day. That that was something that lasted all day, well into the early morning. Um, and then uh, Kobe's last game when I was with him from early in the morning and, you know, went with him up to Staples and that entire crazy game, you know, 60 points and then everything after the game that happened. So it was very, I'm very fortunate to have been put in a position to be able to have these experiences and be able to you have know, documented them. That's the most important thing.
1: And you mentioned Kobe. Um, uh, you were with him for his entire career. Um, you first meet him, and it's the start of, of something special. What's What are your memories of that very first interaction with Kobe?
2: Well, you know, you guys probably heard this story. I'm sure you're listening to it to too, but I met him on Media Day 1996.
3: Mm-hmm. And, you
2: know, I, lo- I love retelling this story because it's really my favorite story of him from, like, this whole 20 plus years that I knew him. And uh, here's this 18 year old rookie on my set at media day. And like any other young rookie or traded player, some a player I hadn't met before, before I take a picture, I go and introduce myself, you know, he's standing there and he's waiting for me to shoot. And I walk up, I say, Hey, Kobe, I'm Andy Bernstein. I'm your Lakers team photographer. And he looks me straight in the eye and he goes, well, I know who you are. <laughs> hmm, okay. <laughs> um, you know, later on when I had teenagers and I would hear something like that, it was kind of a smart ass, he kind of remark, but I'm like, how is that possible? Because, you know, we never met before. And he says, well, I had all your pictures in my room and posters uh, hanging up, you know, I grew up, you know. <laughs> I'm like, geez, there's gotta be something about this kid that's different because nobody reads photo credits on posters. And uh, he, I found out very quickly what a student of the game he was to the, point where he would literally look at photo credits on posters mm-hmm. and study photos and dissect them and that came full circle 20 years well yeah it was 21 years later when we were doing our book together and uh, he told me about his process of how he broke down my photos, NATs photos, you know video footage that he would literally break it down like you know like a surgeon or you know somebody in a medical lab almost. Um, and it really was fascinating to me because I, I would never think that, you know, I would think here's a nice picture of a young Kobe guarding Michael Jordan, but he, he looked at it completely different. You know, he looked at it from a technical standpoint.
1: Well, to that end, and I, I, you know, get to see your name every day because although not Andy, Andrew, because having Mamba mentality as a, as a coffee table book. And I see it literally every day in my, in my, in my Uh living room. You, I Mm -hmm. know when you talked about when you worked on on, on making this book together and you called it the greatest accomplishment of your career. um, Kobe had said that he wanted to um, wanted to open up about what made him tick. And so you started Mm -hmm. to talk about it right there, but how would you describe what, what made Kobe tick?
2: Well, none of us knew. I mean, those of us who were close to him and covered him, um, he gave little inklings once in a while of of what made him tick and what, you know, when he took on the persona of the Black Mamba about halfway through his career, he never really explained that. (laughs) You know, know, we all knew it was this, like, vicious snake and all this kind of thing and, and whatever connotations you can make from that. But he never really broke that down you know, he let people kind of come to their own conclusions and basically let his play speak for itself. So when he retired and I, um, I was about to, well, I wanted to do this kind of coffee table book of like my favorite pictures of him. Um, that's not the book he wanted to do. He wanted to do a book with me, which was incredibly generous, but um, he wanted to do a book that would let people behind the curtain, you know, And the way he broke that down was um, what is the process that he goes through on a daily basis and the craft of basketball. So the process being all of the um, mental and physical preparation that he has to do, how he takes care of his mind and body, how he recovers from injury, uh, how he deals with injury, you know, Um, and then, uh, you know, all of his weight training, things like that. Um, and then craft has everything to do with basketball, you know, the actual craft of being this incredibly elite basketball player. Um, so it got to the point where he was asking for photos of very, very specific things that would be a teaching tool, really, to young players, to coaches, parents, whoever, or even just the general public who just wanted to know, you know, really what greatness meant, <laughs> you know, what's behind it. and. I would make prints for him of certain photos and give him a sharpie and he would circle things on the photo like where his legs were or where his eyes were or his elbow or all kinds of stuff and we left that in the book we actually left his mm-hmm. you know physical writing on the pictures in the book because you know it's coming right from him i mean it's not anyone describing him it's not anybody their opinion of him, it's him talking about him. (laughs) So that's what made the book incredibly personal and special because it was him telling his story about what made him tick, right? Um, Complimented and illustrated through my photos. And, uh, you know, I'm incredibly, I can't even use, the word grateful doesn't even cover it. But, you know, the fact that now the book, after the tragedy of losing him, is really a bridge it's an incredible vehicle for the fans out there to stay connected to him, because it's in his own words you know and it's it, and that's a beautiful thing for me to see
0: Do you feel better telling Kobe's stories, or are there times when it it still just hurts too much
2: yeah that's, that's a really great question because um I'm one of these guys in life like that has like delayed reactions to stuff, you know, with my kids. Like, my kids would get hurt, and it would just be all about, like, okay, what do I got to do? They got to take them to the emergency room. I got to call the doctor, you know, I get in a car accident or a fender bender, you know, and then emotionally I break down later, you know, like down the road. And a lot of people are like that, you know, you just take care of business. My wife is the opposite of that, you know, she gets emotional first and then kind of relies on me to take care of business, you know. <laughs> um, so with Kobe, when the when the, the accident happened, it was it was unbelievable shock that uh, I'd never, I'd never been shocked like that in my life. Um, and millions of people haven't either. Uh, but then people were calling for interviews like right away, like within the hour. And I found it very, uh, I don't know what the right word is. I don't know if it's cathartic, but it was like an escape for me to really deal with the grief, quite frankly in the moment. And then, you know, when when things started to sort of subside and, and interviews and, and having to deal with like right in the moment, um, that's when things just really hit me. I mean, big time. I uh you know, I just started breaking down it like the drop of a hat. <laughs> it was really mm-hmm. terrible. And thinking about Vanessa and the girls and and you know, caring about them so much and what they must be going through. I mean it just it's a tragedy upon tragedy i mean it's it's indescribable and to this day i mean we're what 8 months later uh it's still like it's still basically surreal that this actually happened you know i see videos i was watching a video of him this morning
3: um
2: and it's like it just blows me away that we we don't have him we don't have we are not able to watch him mentor his daughter we don't have her and her whole life in front of her Uh, In an instant, just an instant, it just ended. And it's just so, it's so incredibly tragic and sad. But what I found, guys, is that there's millions and millions of people who share that same, that same feeling, that same emotion, Mm -hmm. that same helplessness and grief. And recently I I was contacted by a guy named Mike Asner who started a, uh, a website and an instagram site um, based on tracking all the murals that uh, are a tribute to kobe and gigi throughout the world and this guy just a labor of love because this is his way of expressing his grief was to try to do this and it's an amazing thing it's called kobe mural.com same thing on instagram so if you you know are traveling somewhere or you just want to see like a mural in Turkey, a, mur- a mural in Milan, a mural in Shanghai, a, mur- a mural in Brooklyn in L.A., of course. I mean, it's incredible. So we started, we actually joined forces, Mike and I, and we're documenting the, some of the artists who became, you know, incredible muralists. And we're finding that the story is the same. <laughs> you know, these these great street, some of them are just street artists, graffiti artists, really. Um, some of them, some of them are, you know, bona fide exhibition artists, um, that their way of giving back to the Kobe community, their way of dealing with their grief is to express it through their art, through the murals. And then take it one step further, you have the the building owner, you know, if it's an apartment house, if it's a coffee shop, you know, gas station, I mean, somebody allowed this muralist to put this mural on their property, you know, what's that all about, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. And the stories are fascinating, absolutely amazing. We've done five or six of them before I left for here, and uh, we're in the process of doing some more in the U.S. and internationally. And I don't know what the end result will be, but it's a a beautiful – the process of it is just beautiful, and and I I thoroughly enjoy hearing these stories and sharing them.
0: There's never an easy transition from – the tragedy of Kobe and Gigi, but, with just a few more minutes left. I want to ask a few questions that may be unrelated to one another. Mm -hmm. And I want to ask about Shaq. What are your, what are your remembrances of your day with Shaq that you spent the full day with him in the mid (laughs) nineties?
2: Well, Shaq had a habit of trying to kill me on various uh, occasions. Um, All out of good fun, by the way, because that's just the way he is. (laughs) (laughs) Right, like like on the baseline? uh, Well, he fell on me three times. And, um, you know, for a guy his size, he was incredibly agile. I mean, people really don't realize what a tremendous athlete that Shaq was. Um, You know, 340 pounds or whatever of him. But he he was an incredible athlete. And... uh, you know, he'd get hammered every single time that he'd go up, you know, to the basket to dunk or, or to get a rebound. And the way he was able to control his his landing and sometimes his fall, very rarely would you see Shaq on the ground. I mean, you know, I can't even remember more than maybe five times in my career that he actually fell to the ground, to the floor. Um, but three of those times he landed on me. <laughs> and What's that recovery time, like? Dude, it was crazy, man. It was the Western Conference Finals. I want to say it was. I think it was 2001. I might be wrong. Um, but it, so he he got he went up for something for a basket, I think, for a dunk, and just got hammered by two or three guys, and just lost control. And then you know I'm I'm only sitting like four feet away from where he is basically, and uh, he just kind of stumbled in and boom fell right on top of me and we would literally chest to chest he laid me out like completely and his <laughs> his his face in my face are like looking at each other and this is true i'd be i have like a lens embedded in my chest you know and i can't breathe and i'm like <gasps> gasping and he looks he's like two inches away from me he looks at me he goes Hey, is that you, man? I'm like, yes, yeah, me. I get that you know what off me, man. <laughs> and he looks at me, and goes, "Give it a second, man. We're on national TV." <laughs> <laughs> this dude was out of his mind. Um, <laughs> and then there was another time I was doing a shoot for Reebok, and uh, I don't really tell this story that often, but you asked. And we had the the shoot was they wanted the shoes shot from underneath. You know so it's one of those shots where the player has to be up on a stage, and then there's we built this stage about four feet off the ground, and it' this four four inch piece thick thick piece of uh plexiglass right and I'm laying down underneath it where the lighting is coming from underneath, and the the shot is these gigantic underneath of the shoes you know up to his body and it's you know very distorted it's it's what they wanted. So he built this elaborate set and the whole thing, and I'm laying under there with my camera, and the only thing that's separating me and him is a four-inch piece, you know, four-inch thick piece of plexiglass. And he comes up on top, and he just thinks it'll be really fun if he just jumps up and down on this piece of plexiglass, oh, you know, wow. like literally jumping. <laughs> I'm like no. You know, my assistants are there. They don't know what to do, you know. And then he's laughing. He thinks it's the funniest thing ever. Oh, my God. Um, oh, and Then there's another great. You asked me, so I'm going to tell you these stories. So there's another great story. When, when he wins his MVP, this is a classic, classic Shaq story. So he wins the MVP. And I I have to do this portrait, which I always do, of the MVP winner, you know, Nat, if the, if the player is in kind of Nat's territory or in my territory, we, you know, split it up. And so I go to Lakers facility and the only place we can do it that's private is in a spare locker room that they had, um, which had a very low ceiling. So I couldn't put lighting and a backdrop in there. So my solution was, okay, we'll put a backdrop up and Shaq will sit on a stool, right? And then David Stern will be sort of, you know, a little bit behind and behind his shoulder and he'll hold the trophy. So we go in this tiny little locker room. There's got to be 30 people in there, you know, all of them with their blackberries and everybody's all jammed up because, you know, the commissioner's in there and they only have, you know, 30 seconds to do this picture and hurry up, Andy, let's go. And uh, Shaq was there, he had the trophy. And I positioned Mr. Stern right, you know, sort of behind him a little bit and i go to take the picture and uh mr o'neil my good friend is holding the trophy with one hand but he's giving me the finger with the other hand
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah and that was his thing that he would give me the finger we have over 300 pictures of, of him giving me the finger in every possible situation <laughs> you can imagine. like on the gold medal stand at the olympics he's giving me the finger i mean it was like unbelievable but anyway um so I'm not taking the picture, right, and I'm I'm literally sweating bullets, and I got all these NBA people standing behind me, and David Stern, God bless him, who I had a wonderful relationship with, he looks at me like he's ready to kill me, <laughs> and he, he looks at me, he goes, is everything all right, Andy? You know, and that kind of, you know, like your dad would say that to mm-hmm. you, <laughs> like you better get this going and i said yeah everything's okay with me mr stern how about you mr (laughs) o'neill and and he held it he held it for about another second and then he you know then he i got the picture that was maybe three or four frames and david didn't know like as he's walking out he's like fuming like what the hell are you do wasting my time you know it's like what was
3: going on here
2: um everybody leaves and Shaq is there and he's like almost rolling on the floor. He's he the funniest thing. And I looked at him, and I said, I use some very colorful language. <laughs> I thought, what are you, why are you doing this to me? <laughs> but that just shows side of the other side of, unfortunately, the other side of friendship and trust, you know, when, when he could feel mm-hmm. he could do that to me. Years and years later, I mean, this is like fast forward to, uh, Two thousand nineteen when I went to interview David Stern for my podcast, I told him that story and he didn't know the story until then. <laughs> and he and he said and he said to me, he said, Andy, he goes, Of all the times that you shot me, that is the one time I thought you really screwed up. <laughs> 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 I said, "Well, I'm glad that you know that it wasn't my fault." <laughs>
1: uh, that's so good. I can't wait to read the Shaq flipping you off uh, coffee table book. That's the one that I. <laughs>
3: oh, I yeah. Well, you know, it's
2: really fun. This is this is really funny. You say that because for his thirtieth birthday. I made him uh, like a little book of photos. It was a it was a photo album. You know, we didn't have like the Shutterfly books in those days. But I, I I saved all the pictures. I made prints. I made him an album. I put made a cover. Give it to him. He was super happy about it. About a month later, he goes, "You got another one of them books? I lost it." <laughs>
3: <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> <laughs> he has lost the book. Oh, that's incredible.
2: Is, is this photo book of Shaq flipping me off um, <laughs> but we always joked about it and I said I can't I can't publish a book like that while I'm still working for the NBA <laughs> you know, um, maybe one day we will and it was always uh, fun I mean it was all all with his you know his his uh, playful expression and you know Shaq always liked to push the envelope so you know it would be fun to one day do that. I don't know. I don't know the format or how we would do it, but one day we will.
1: Andy, last last question for me. Uh, you you push the trigger on the the famous MJ shot against the Jazz mm. ninety eight. His last shot, last wonderful right. moment. But mm-hmm. what's of interest to me is you then work your way up to go catch Jordan in in the hotel room in the ensuing celebration and walk mm. in on a famous couple on your way to get there what
2: were Carmen Electra <laughs> and
1: Dennis Rodman doing when you when you walked into their room
2: well this is you know a couple three hours after the championship was won and I, I went up there to the hotel and the Bulls had this whole the whole floor in the hotel there in Salt Lake City top floor and the first room literally I walk into all the doors were open you know it's like being in your dorm on the weekend, you know, like all the doors are open, users coming out, people are partying and stuff. And I say walk in the first room there's Dennis and Carmen Electra just kind of sitting on the couch, probably six or seven champagne bottles just strewn all over the place. And he looks up and he goes, Hey man, want some champagne? <laughs> I'm good, dude. <laughs> so that was kind of interesting. And then, uh, all the commotion was coming from the end of the hall, which was the presidential suite, and that's that's where Michael was holding court with the grand piano and you've seen those photos. You saw that in the last dance. Mm-hmm. And uh I love saying that, you know, Michael Jordan was really good at at a lot of stuff, but dude did not have to, know how to play the piano <laughs> in any way, shape or form. But he was sitting there like make, he was like making believe that he could play the piano, you know, uh, and it was just a fun, fun night. It was so great. The only bad thing about that night guys, quite frankly, is that I caught pneumonia. <laughs> <that> oh, <night.
3: laughs> so, well, that's yeah,
2: what you get because,
0: because, walking in on Carmen Electra and Dennis Rodman. Andy.
2: <laughs> yeah. Right. That's my punishment. No, but what happened <laughs> was, you know, I'm in the locker room at Delta center, drenched in champagne. My boss says, now you got to, Go to the hotel. Of course, there were no cabs raining, and it's about six or eight blocks away. So I'm just running through the streets of Salt Lake City, drenched. You know, mm-hmm. um, it was a little cool in the air. And anyway, uh, I the next morning before I flew back, I had a fever. I got home, went to the doctor. Oh, you got walking pneumonia. That's great. <laughs> and I was like you're dead for the next two weeks. <laughs> Andy, what's so it?
1: What's it that? was the Andy. It was the Andy flu game. Yeah. yeah well done well done
3: there you go there what's you go.
0: what's behind the scenes with or personal moments I shouldn't say not even at the not even at the arena what are personal moments with leBron like versus the personal moments with Kobe and
2: his family like well, you know keep in mind that I was around Kobe like daily pretty much for right. for twenty years from when he was a rookie, so that relationship much different. I mean, I, I, yes, I've been around LeBron since his rookie year. And of course we've had all the big events, you know, USA basketball finals, all-star games, things like that. But I, 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 and we have a great relationship. I, it's just not as closely as not even close to being as deep as it was as a friendship mm-hmm. um, and even a working relationship as it was with Kobe. And it, it really can't be, you know, because, you know, even Michael, I, I was around Michael a lot, but it wasn't anywhere compared to how much I was around Kobe and, and Shaq and, and even going back to, like, the magic days. But, um, you know, LeBron has been incredibly uh, welcoming. Um, and, is, you know, I know his people, all his, you know, his whole team. And, you know, it's so great for me to have him now in the purple and gold you know, in front of my lens. I mean, what a gift that is to a photographer. So, um, You know, it's a win-win situation for me.
0: Who is the the first person that you ever asked to be in a photo with?
2: Uh, uh, Boy, that's a really, that's a tough question. Um, You know, this is going to sound really stupid, but I think it was Renee Zellweger. (laughs) (laughs) Because I hope my wife isn't listening, but I actually had a little crush on her, you know, back in the Jerry Maguire days, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> and she came to a game and she's super sweet, like very shy person and she's sitting courtside. And she's one of these celebrities who, like is anti-courtside, like she shouldn't be at courtside because it's, it's like not her thing to be in the spotlight. And I I just had to get a picture with her. I never have ever done that again. I never did it before and I never did it again. She's the only celebrity I asked my assistant to take a picture of. And she was very sweet, you know, gave me a nice little smile. And that was it. (laughs) So I (laughs) uh... I, I wish I had more, but, you know, I wish I had more pictures, but I have a lot of candid pictures of me talking to, you know, Denzel or Jack or whoever. And I'm very appreciative to my cohorts who send send those to me once in a while. But, you know, I try not to cross that line. But I don't know, with her, I just had to do it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Understandable. (laughs) Understandable. All right, we'll close with this as we do every podcast since it is the rejecting the screen podcast. So we'll put you in this situation from covering the NBA from your very first assignment in at the 83 All-Star game at the forum until now. Who would you choose to take a photograph of with the game on the line to reject a screen, go ISO, get a bucket.
2: Uh, Well, that's that's such a tough question. Um, You know, I would love to, uh, I love Giannis's game. Uh, I mean, I can't name one guy really. Um, You know, I love, I love my Clippers. I've been around forever, my Lakers. Um, so there's guys on those teams that I would just love to see, I would love to see somebody have like a Steve Kerr moment, you know, and Steve hit that shot in the final Michael passed in. I would just love to see a guy like a Lou Williams, you know, or who's great, of course, but you know, somebody get that shot that Mm -hmm. lives forever, um, and, and almost define their career. Although, you know, that shot didn't define Steve's career, but look at the, you know, this the story of that shot and what, and what it became. Um, so I, I know I didn't specifically. No, I like that. that. No, but I do like that. Yeah. that an, icon,
0: an iconic photo for someone who isn't photographed all day, every day on the court. I can yeah. certainly appreciate that.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Thanks. All right, all
0: right so I'd suggest I, I'd suggest everybody go on Andy's Instagram feed at ADB Photo Inc. Inc. You can Google Andy Bernstein NBA and look at photos all day long. And if you haven't been doing this already, when you look at NBA photos, look at the photo credit, just like Kobe (laughs) used to as a kid. And Mm -hmm. I remember my very first photo of seeing of Andy's was the 87 Lakers on the boat because I wore out that VHS from NBA Entertainment (laughs) and then wear out that photo also looking at that. Also, the podcast... It's called Legends of Sport. It's a must-subscribe, so do that everywhere you get your podcasts. The Hall of Famer, Andy Bernstein, also part of the Mamba mentality. If you haven't read the book, haven't seen the book, you're not going to break into Adam's house to get it. You should pick it up on your own. Andy, we appreciate it. Thank you so much.
2: Well, guys, really a treat talking to you guys, especially from the bubble. I'm going to hang up from you. I'm going to leave my quarantine, which I've been in for eight days, and I'm actually going to go to work. (laughs) What a concept. (laughs) I have not, you know, done anything photo related, Uh, been doing a lot with my podcast and a lot with Legends of Sport during the pandemic, but I have not done anything photographic, you know, and I haven't shot a game since March 11th. So. I'm stoked. I'm excited. So we'll under, we'll stoked. understand
0: if your first few first few frames aren't Hall of Fame worthy. We get it. You might be rusty, Andy. We get it. <laughs> <laughs> we
2: get it. <laughs> Thank yeah. you, guys. I appreciate it. But uh, uh, no one, Adam. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me, guys. And take care of yourself.
1: Yeah, we appreciate oh, it. Thank you, Andy. well. Pleasure.
0: Pleasure. I mean, you want to talk about stories. I mean, we didn't even go back to his very first NBA assignment the 83 all-star game at the form when the NBA didn't even have a photographer. They weren't even planning on photographing the event.
1: Yeah. his Marvin Gaye sings the national anthem famously Mm -hmm. there. And that's like his, okay, kid, you better get ready for this moment. Like now Marvin Gaye is singing the national anthem for you. And, you know, just the most famous rendition of the national anthem of all time. I mean, just... Incredible throughout his career. So many things that like take note of, want to ask him about. And then all of a sudden you get rolling and you can just only ask so much. I mean, he he's his famous put picture of bird magic on the cover Mm -hmm. of Jackie McMullen's book. I mean, it's like just every iconic photo I feel like in the NBA was either taken by him or or Nat Butler. And that's no disrespect to the other great photographers associated with NBA photos, but it really does seem that way that when you go check out photo credits, like the list of their photos is just remarkable. Like it's just unfathomable the how big they are, just titans of of that industry.
0: And when I went back and looked at that SI cover that he described in eighty five when the Lakers beat the Celtics and it's Kareem and Danny Ainge. And when you do when you look at the photo, you don't think Yeah, that's that's an S I cover. You don't think I mean, it's not a, if I just saw that photo, I would keep scrolling. So given, given the iconic photos of Andy Bernstein's career, the fact that that one was his first SI cover and it produces such a great story just proves that you just, you never know. You never know. But
1: his, his whole, his whole journey is incredible. He talked about his dad and, um, it's it's pretty awesome i mean because every one of these stories that you talk about when when it's someone who's accomplished something great it's almost like they have the talent and then they went and they go and work for it and um that was the thing is i was i was looking up his background he's talked about his dad and giving him credit he's 14 years old they go to travel in national parks and he's getting credit for from his dad when the pictures come back it's like wow this is something special you got something here and later he's told in his career you got something you got something and then but it's like the effort he put in, and and what's interesting is you spend all that time, and you can tell he's a fan at heart, just like us. But it's like when he has work to do, and he's there taking pictures. I mean, the end result is just is beautiful, and you know you can't miss you can't miss in his business. You you miss your you're getting chewed out by David Stern. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know your, your 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 livelihoods at stake if if you're missing shots. So it's incredible the craftsmanship from these guys.
0: And Adam, you asked a great question about how you how he studies and learns tendencies of players in order to shoot them, because, as you said, you can't miss, and you get a shot every four seconds because it takes that long for things to reload, and that's how they do things and Nat had talked about that as well on the podcast for the strobes to reload et cetera, so you've got to learn the tendencies so the so as a photographer, you're watching film and you're paying. As close attention to some of these players as the defenders are to learn those tendencies to know that when kobe fakes one way 80 percent of the time he's going to come back so let me hold this here and i'll shoot it here and the same for lebron and michael and i thought you brought it up brilliantly with with magic and all the misdirection how did you know when to pull the trigger on the photo
1: well, it's interesting. As I was researching this, there was there was one story that I think captures that, too, just in terms of understanding the game and the situation. And he basically has said that when this whole four second rule, like he he takes the picture, he he hits the trigger, uh, as I was saying, it with happened with Jordan against the Jazz 98. He hits the trigger on it and it, it's a trigger for cameras basically all over the arena including, again, Mm -hmm. that famous shot from the opposite baseline. You see the Utah crowd. I mean, if I mention one crowd shot, NBA history, that's the picture. You know, everybody's hands on their faces and all. And what's interesting is he said he's on the sidelines. Tony Kukoc ends up blocking his vision. But but Russell stumbles. Jordan rises. He knows his individual picture. He's not going to get it. But he has to take the shot at that moment. So basically gets... Cuckooch is back like it's blocked for his own photo, but it's like he's sacrificing for, you know, for all the other cameras. And that's where that picture comes from. It's him knowing and anticipating. And it's amazing. He captures the end of Jordan's career brilliantly because he knew the timing has to be perfect on this. And even though he doesn't have the shot, he knows one of the cameras does. And I just I think that's awesome in terms of just this next level
0: of of knowledge that you just need and, and to be great at your craft. I remember that being in ESPN, the magazine, a full two-page spread and then pulling it out and putting it on my wall in, oh, well, at home in high school. And then I remember taking it with me to college and having that up in my dorm room as well. The Michael open Chicago with the lead. That was the, the Costas call. And then Costas goes on to say, that might be, we don't know what might unfold over the next, that might be. The last shot, Michael Jordan's career. Wow. So he's Andy Bernstein, the Hall of Fame photographer at ADB Photo Inc. I-N-C on Instagram. It's a must follow if you appreciate the NBA. We're on Instagram at rejecting underscore the underscore screen. On Twitter at NaismithLives is where you find Adam. I'm at Noah Koslov, C O S L O V. Here's what else is on the Locked On Podcast Network. Aside from us, which you should be subscribing, telling your friends about, mm-hmm. please share it, download, rate, review. In the past we've asked you to do just one of those things. Just do all of it. Do well, all please right. come on, what are we asking
1: for? Just do all of it. Right now, actually, too. Don't don't wait. Like, oh I'm gonna wait till you know next week. I got a little more time. I'm busy right now, my kid needs to be, you know, diaper needs just to be checked. It. No. Just go do it right now. Just do it.
0: Kid can wait. I was on a Zoom last night with a few buddies, and, and one of them held up the phone that he was listening to the Dante Jones podcast. Just be like, there you go. Be like him. I mean, that's Not a little Dante
1: disrespectful. Knox. That's a little disrespectful to do when you're on a Zoom call with other
0: people. But listen, I'll take it. It was, it was before anybody else got on. It was just two of us. I wanted him to wait and say, hey, can you make sure the rest of the guys are doing the same thing? Just, just do it. <laughs> Everything else on the Locked On Podcast Network. Locked On NBA five days a week. We've promoted it before, but Ben Golliver, the Washington Post, is Mm -hmm. in the bubble, and he's hosting on Thursdays with David Locke. Locked on Fantasy Hoops with Josh Lloyd and our best to Josh's son. He he tweeted that he wasn't going to have a show. We're recording this on Friday, August 28th, that he wasn't going to have a show because his son was going to the hospital, so our best to Josh and his family. Mm -hmm. Hollinger and Duncan every week and locked on every team your team every day which is part of the locked on podcast network adam thanks pal you are the best